Hello and welcome to another episode of the Everyday Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Green. This is a podcast where we remind ourselves that God deserves every praise from every creature every day. This is a Scattered Abroad Network podcast. Go and check out the Scattered Abroad Network in the app store of your choosing, wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, etc. And uh, don't forget to check out all the various podcasts that we have each day of the week. Check out our master feed as well if you like to just get all of the content that we produce in one easy place. And don't forget to check out uh, the new podcast that I'm working on. It uh, comes out once a month. The first episode should be up now, and that is the Father Time podcast with myself and Scott Kane and Matt McBrayer. Again, the uh, aim of that podcast is it's high time for Father Time, and we just want to encourage fathers to step up and be the spiritual leaders of their home. We have Dan Cates with us again this week, and uh, Dan is one of my former instructors from the Memphis School of Preaching. Certainly love and appreciate Dan and, and all of the instructors there that uh, mean so much to us, and, and uh, they're, they're teaching us while we were in preaching school, and uh, he is going to continue talking with us this week about the deity of Christ. Again, this is a very important subject. If you didn't hear last week's episode, make sure and pause this one and, and go back and listen to last week's episode as it will get you ready for what we're about to talk about on this week's episode with the deity of Christ. But Dan, it's a good to have you with us again, and I uh, really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. I enjoyed the uh, last discussion. Look forward to this one. Yes, sir. You had mentioned uh, that you actually have uh, done some work recently in this field uh, about the deity of Christ. you want to kind of mention some of that? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, a lot of it is on John. I was uh, tasked with the deity of Christ in the Joannine writings, and so not just in the gospel account. Uh, we touched on some of it in, in the last discussion when we were dealing with the I am uh, statements that were made. Uh, that That's by, by far not the only uh, time in the book when we see the uh, or in John's writings, when we see his the deity of Christ, uh, we see it a lot in John one. We can talk about that in in just a minute. But just as sort of an overview, uh, you mentioned in our last uh, talk together, the Son of God, uh, that idea of of equality, uh, Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ, anointed one, requires his being both God and man. Uh, when we go not only in uh, John 1, verse 29, and see that Jesus is the Lamb of God, when we go to Revelation chapter 5, and we are given this glimpse into the throne scene in this apocalyptic image, uh, chapter 4, the Father was upon the throne. Uh, chapter 5, there's a bit of a difficulty because the uh, there's a book there which no man can open, in fact, not even could a strong angel open the book. Uh, but one of the elders told John not to fear because there was one that could prevail to open the book. And there's that lamb, the lamb that we read about back in John 129, uh, the lamb who is the Passover lamb for us. And yet, even though he has taken away the sin, even though he was slain in Revelation chapter five, he's standing. and there in Revelation 5, he's not only a lamb, he's a lion as well. Well, that requires his being both 
uh, God and man. Uh, we mentioned uh, Messiah, uh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We see that not only in John, but in Revelation. We're going to uh, talk about that briefly in just a second. Uh, he possessed and he was worthy of glory. Uh, we'll notice some of that in John 1, but you also see that in John 2.11, John 7.18, uh, 8.50. John 11 has a lot of that. We've mentioned Revelation 5, uh, verses 12 and 13 show that he, uh, like the Father in chapter 4, was worthy. I think when we see the uh, picture of the ladder to heaven in John 1, 51, uh, that, that ties us to uh, Jesus being, uh, and Genesis 28, 1, uh, 12 and 17, Jesus being that connection between heaven and earth. Uh, when, when we see people coming across Jesus in the book of John, John, um, the, the writer, confesses that Jesus is the word of life. John the Baptist confesses that he's the Lamb of God. Nathaniel confesses that he's the King of Israel. The Samaritans confess that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. Over and over in those books, and what we can talk about in just a moment, but over and over we see Jesus not only demonstrating for himself and through what he says and the miracles that he performs, but others recognizing what he has done and who he is. Right, right. And, um, the question that I wanted to ask you next, I bet, I bet our listeners can already figure out the answer before you say it, but I want to ask you anyways, and we can talk about it some more, but there is one gospel writer in particular who really delves into the subject matter of the deity of Christ. So Dan, do you want to tell us who that is? I, again, I, I bet the, the listeners can guess because we've said his name so many times, but uh, maybe That's also talk about why you think it is that he talked it about is it so Luke. much. <laughs> you know, it is John. It is John. Right. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you, you see certainly in those books, the divinity of Christ. Uh, I think, for instance, in Matthew, uh, when you see in Matthew chapter uh, 3, the baptism of Jesus, in Matthew 17, the transfiguration, uh, obviously, throughout, throughout the gospel accounts, but one especially, and that's John, and he starts with it, and uh, we might mention, or, or we might say, you know, the end of chapter 20, obviously, it's not chapter 21 there, but the end of chapter 20, he's ending with it, uh, but John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning of, with God, going down to verse 14, uh, became flesh and dwelt for a while among us we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth the only begotten the monogenes of the father just as we read in john three sixteen, where we see him spoken of as the uh, only begotten this uh according to rex turner senior uh, Rex Turner Sr. said, here John, instead of beginning with the virgin birth of Christ, as Matthew and Luke did, gave a perspective of Christ which had not been specifically set forth 
in either of the other three gospel records. So John is choosing to, to begin it differently than we've had in other passages. And Jesus is the monogonase. He is the only begotten. But going back to the beginning of that chapter, he, he was the word. The word, verse 14, became flesh. But in the beginning, word, that word that became flesh was in the beginning with God, was with God, was God. And verse 3, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. That's God. And why word? Why, why that idea? Well, a word is an expression of a thought. And God is metaphysical. But now you have a physical expression of the metaphysical. Uh, Brother Mosier said, the word and the idea are coetaneous. That word coetaneous means that they are of the same age or duration, indicating that one cannot exist without the other, because even in the thought, the word, the symbol of the thought, is already formed. It's, it's formed when the thought is formed. Now, again, he doesn't have a beginning. The point is, as long as that thought has been there, the word has been there with him. And that's that's eternally. That's uh, very well said. Um, is there any way you could maybe dumb that down a little bit for me? Um, it's I mean, I think we can understand this, but it's also something that is in some ways difficult to grasp, too. Um, uh, which part the, the idea that the word and and the the word idea or with regard to monogenes or what? yeah the the part about the the capital W word um, okay and I guess the thought versus what what did you say again okay uh, I said uh, on what Brother Mosier had said regarding the word and its idea being coetaneous. Right. In other words, uh, both of them are of the same age or duration. With regard to God's being above, he's, he's metaphysical. No man has seen God at any time. Why not? He, he doesn't have a form that can be seen. Right. Uh, when we see him in the Old Testament. We read of his glory. And you know, that's something that can't be approached into and so forth. Uh, we do recognize in the Old Testament we have times when God is at the burning bush. God is at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and so forth. But that's in a pre-incarnate form of the second person of the Godhead, in my estimation. That, that's not what we would call the Father. Mm -hmm. All right, so, so no man has seen the Father. It's not possible to see the Father. But we can see a physical manifestation of God, and that's when Jesus Christ came in the flesh. So you have this metaphysical, the, the thought, if you will, and the expression of the thought is the physical, or in the sense of the idea of how a thought is expressed, it's expressed in a word. So um, Jesus is actually the, the word for the thought of God, for lack of a better term. 
He is the physical manifestation of the metaphysical. I think I, I can follow that uh, a little better. Um, is is that kind of the idea of Hebrews 1 verse 3, the express image of his person? Yes. Yeah, I, I would tie that together completely. And I also would suggest that the fact that God is metaphysical is part of the reason uh, why he can be of a nature that cannot be tempted with evil. Right. If we think of what sin is, lust the flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life, what if that applies to a metaphysical God? Right. I don't, I don't think it does. Uh, but when that metaphysical God is expressed in a physical being, Christ, then he becomes subject to lust of the eyes, uh, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And how many people have gone to Matthew 4 with the temptation and have said, look, you see those three things that we see in 1 John 2 there right. with reference to the temptation of Jesus, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Uh, that's because he, he was able to be tempted. Right. He was no longer in this metaphysical perfect state. Um, is, it, yeah. is, it, is it fair to say that when he was tempted, he had the full free will choice to do uh, right or wrong, and he chose to do right? If he did not have the ability to choose, we could still stand before God on the day of judgment and say, right. you don't know what it's like. Right. Because you didn't allow him to be able to say no or to be able to say yes. Um, so he, he had to have had the ability to choose. Right, right. I, I otherwise, agree. our temptations are not like his. Correct. Right. And so that's the difference between God in heaven versus God in the flesh. Yeah, I, I would suggest that that's that's why he had to come in the flesh. If he could experience that in heaven, why would he have sent the son? Right. But I, again, as I as I said last week, I do think that sometimes people in wrapping their mind around that, they try to fully humanize Christ. Well, he is 100 percent human. But what I meant by that is. Sometimes people think that he was only human and that's wrong, right? I mean, he's, that, he's God wrong. in the flesh. He, he was God. He's 100 percent he both. God. Pardon? He's 100% God and 100% 100% both. Um, if, if he could not, I'm sorry, if he were not 100% God, when he was in the flesh claiming deity, he would not have been able to perform the miracles that he was performing. Right. Because he would not have been able, he would not have been telling what was actually the case. And God would not confirm a message through miracles, which that's the purpose of miracles, which was a false message. He was fully God. He was fully man at the same time. Now, uh, there have been those historically who have said that's not possible. And, and they've created different doctrines to mm -hmm. try to answer the problem of how could God be God and man. Uh, but what, what is there as far as some rule that God is amenable to? that says that God can't be 100% God and 100% man. You know, wh where's the rule book that says that's not possible? Right. Th there's not one. It, it had to be possible. Absolutely. 
What about um? Can we get into the uh, separation <clears throat> of God from Christ um, on the cross? <laughs> Is that pertinent sure. to this discussion at all? <laughs> my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Right. Um, yeah, uh, a lot of people have done a lot more study on that than I have. Uh, on, on the superficial level, uh, Jesus could have been saying it because... He was supposed to say it when, when he was being crucified. Right. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's a tough one. And there are a lot of different ideas. Uh, I know that Jesus had uh, had not wished to go to the cross. Right. Uh, but he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Right. Uh, I don't think, though that while he was on the cross, he anticipated that God would pull him down. Jesus knew from before the world was established that he was going to have to die on the cross. It's Revelation 13, 8. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If he knew from before he ever came to this earth that he was going to have to die on the cross, did he really on the cross think, well, God has forsaken me? Or is there a deeper thing than, you know, God just, he's, he's forgotten about me, turned his back on me. Uh, you know, is it because he was not a sinner, obviously? He, he became a sin offering. He didn't become uh, sin itself. He didn't become a sinner, but he was bearing the sins of the world upon the cross. Is, is that why or how he was being forsaken. Well, that, that was my next question is uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and you can make the connection back to Isaiah 53. Uh, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not talking about, and sometimes people say this, and I think it's outright blasphemy, but they say, uh, you know, he became a sinner on the cross. That is not what that verse means. It means he became the sin offering. If he became a sinner, then he cannot offer a sacrifice for us. Right. Because that sacrifice had to be a pure sacrifice. Right. Uh, let's say that you're about to offer a sacrifice under the Old Testament system. And as you're about to offer that sacrifice, uh, you, you cause that skin to be blemished. All right. That's no longer a perfect sacrifice. Right. You, you've got to toss that one to the side, get another. And the same would be true of Christ. He could not be a sinner. Right. He, he could he, be a sin offering. And I say he could, could not, not in the case that he couldn't be tempted. He could be tempted. He could have sinned. But right. in order to be our sacrifice, he has to have been above sin. Right. Never have succumbed to temptation. He, uh, he took the penalty, the right. punishment for our sins upon himself. And I go to uh, Isaiah 53, and uh, it says, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, again, 
when you go back to Second Corinthians five twenty one, he became sin. He he became the sin offering. And I think we have to understand it that way, or else we have major major theological problems. Right? We've misrepresented his his very nature if we change him to a sinner. Right. I would suggest you said when you read Isaiah fifty three five, uh, what's the very point? You read the chastisement of our peace was upon him, the chastisement, the punishment, not the the sin itself. Right. The chastisement. He bore the punishment for us. Right. Exactly. Well. Um... You mentioned uh, at the beginning of the book of John, we've got the deity of Christ in chapter 1. The Word became flesh. Uh, verse 3 of John chapter 1, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he was present there at creation. Do you want to mention just a thing or two about that? Yeah, I believe that he was the creative power. I think you see all three members of the Godhead uh, at the creation. You know, a lot of times we'll go to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and we'll see... Uh, God saying, let us make man in our image. And we'll say, see, there's a there's a plurality there. But I think you see it at the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and spirit of God brooded upon the face of the waters. I, I think you even have the third person of Godhead there, the spirit of God brooding upon the face of the waters fashioning. You, you had God who said, let there be. You have Christ who is performing the creative act. And you have the spirit who uh, I think that word even has been used for garnishing, who's garnishing. Um, get the passage right off. Uh, uh, I know Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, not in the sense that he's a created being, uh, but he's the one who was doing the creating. Uh, all things are created by him. Uh, without him was not anything made which was made. Uh, I'm not going to be able to pull up that verse, I don't believe. But he is the, the instrument of the creation. Right. <clears throat> then uh, you, you go down to uh, John 1, verse 14. The word, or the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Is it safe to phrase that the ultimate expression of grace and truth? Uh, I, I would say so. Right. That's not to say that there wasn't grace or truth in the Old Testament, because there was. But without him, what would the grace and truth in the Old Testament have been? Exactly. Right. Because, been... uh, you know, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, verse 8. And uh, we see God being gracious many times in, in the Old Testament. We also see punishment in the Old Testament as well. But uh, without the sacrifice of the precious spotless blood of the capital L Lamb of God that was Jesus, the Messiah, then those sacrifices under the Old Testament system would have meant absolutely nothing. Right. So... Everything right, well, forward to him, and I think John one three. Um, I can't think of the one that I was wanting. Uh, Revelation four eleven though speaks about his having created all things. 
Right. Um, and then at the end of, or close to the end of John, we, you, we, we've mentioned previously John 20, verse 31, uh, and, you know, the signs as well before that. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So again, he is the Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Godhead, God the Son, and he is not to be diminished from God the Father or God the Spirit. Now, he was sub, 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 uh, servient to God the Father's will, correct? Right. But that doesn't mean that he's any less part of the Godhead. That's right. Right. But in any organization, uh, for lack of a better term, there is some form of hierarchy. Right. And, and likewise, I could say that in the home, a husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. But my wife and I are still equally valuable. We just have well, different roles. called an oikodespot house ruler. Right. So, okay. Um, well, I think that kind of clears everything up. Uh, hopefully, um, hopefully from what we're trying to uh, to teach on the deity of Christ. But I, the last thing I want to talk about is various groups of people, and you've kind of delved into this a little bit. But uh, groups of people in history that have perverted or denied the deity of Christ. I think there's one in particular that John was having to deal with when he wrote uh, both his gospel and uh, his epistles, and I guess probably the book of Revelation as well. Um, would you like to cue in our, our listeners on what that would be? Sure. Uh, there was a doctrine uh, in the first century called Gnosticism. Uh, it wasn't limited to the first century, and I would suggest that it wasn't what it would become in the first century, but I believe you are already seeing uh, aspects of it and, and pretty strong aspects of it. Uh, I do believe that John was uh, writing to answer some of the forms of Gnosticism. To give you an idea of why I say forms of Gnosticism, uh, I put together a chart a number of years ago of different doctrines that had Gnostic elements to them. And among them were the doctrines of Arianism, Asceticism, Docetism, Donatism, Ebionitism, uh, Manichaeism, Marcionism, Monasticism, uh, Monarchianism, Adoptionism, and Monarchianism, Modalism, Monophysitism in its Eutychianism uh, form, Monophysitism in its Apollinarianism form, monothelitism, anyway, the list goes on. And every one of these has some forms of Gnosticism attached to it. Now, if you look at, uh, the book is a dictionary of early uh, Christian beliefs. I don't have it where I can see it right now. But anyway, uh, a book by a fellow named Burkott, he gives a good illustration or a good uh, definition. Yeah, it's called a dictionary of early Christian beliefs. He definition. He said the primary heresy the pre-Nicene church faced was Gnosticism. There were numerous Gnostic teachers and sects with varying teachings. There were some basic teachings, however, that all Gnostic sects had in common. Among these was the teaching 
that mankind and the earth were not created by the father of Jesus. Rather, the demiurge who was either a wicked angel or a lesser deity created mankind and the earth. Because of the imperfections of the demiurge, all material things, including man's flesh, are inherently equal. Anyway, you go further down. And one of the problems that they have is if Jesus Christ is flesh, then he cannot be God spirit. Uh, out of that arose a particular Gnosticism called Docetism. Docetism said that Jesus only seemed to suffer when he was on the cross. He did not actually suffer. Well, I think when, when we're reading through the book of John and we see John's speaking about the word being made flesh, he's demonstrating God can be flesh. Now, Gnostics, you notice in that word, the name, the, the sound of gnosis, Gnostic gnosis, Gnosis was a Greek word for knowledge. In general usage, there were certain times where John had to use, use that term when he's dealing, for instance, with the heirs' uh, tense. But in general usage, he avoided use of the word gnosis, any form of it. Why is that? I, I think very possibly so that he's not, try, he's not giving them more ammunition. So he's picturing that Jesus Christ is God really answering? Now, there's some people that say that, that he wasn't answering Gnosticism. Uh, some will say that Gnosticism came later. Some will say that he was unconcerned with Gnosticism. Uh, but I, I think that he's, he's probably answering it uh, not only there, but in the other writings that he had as well. Um, just a, a few things that some have said. Uh, let's see, the uh, uh, dualism, let's see, Joanine Corpus. Uh, Hellier, Hellier said, the Joanine Corpus suggests a counterblast against an early form of Gnosticism and incipient Gnosticism. Uh, John's writings evident are polemic against Docetism and incipient Gnosticism. In other words, there are those that recognize what the Gnostics were teaching, whether or not John is answering it, is answered in the book of John. I would suggest he was. And uh, can we explain just briefly, we've got about six or seven minutes left, but uh, could we explain some of the teachings that came out of Gnosticism as far as asceticism and things like that, denying sure. oneself and Everything yeah. physical is automatically bad and, and things like that. Yeah, basically, you've got two extremes. Uh, the, the Gnostic said all flesh is evil, all spirit is good. So if you're human, you obviously have flesh. So what do you do? Well, the two extremes are you do everything that you can to inhibit the flesh, to hurt the flesh. And that's asceticism. Uh, that That is, I have to beat my flesh so that my spirit is able to, to have the upper hand, is able to be stronger. All right, that was one extreme. The other extreme was, well, if my flesh is evil anyway, 
I might as well go ahead and live it up. I might as well go ahead and do whatever it is that I want to do because I can't do anything about my my spirit anyway. Well, those are two extremes, and neither one of them is correct because they're based on a faulty premise in the first place. That There is nothing inherently at odds between flesh and spirit. Uh, where did the idea originate? A lot of people have different suggestions. I, I think a lot of Gnosticism originated from Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, Philo and his El Alexandrian Judaic uh, school there uh, tied together Jewish uh, history and, and tradition along with mythology and Greek philosophy. Right, whenever you start mixing Judaism or Christianity for that matter with mythology, you're not going to make the product better than you started with with, with regard to the religion. All right, so th these ideas start to originate not with the Bible, not with inspired writers, but effectively with philosophers. All right, that's a problem that doesn't need to exist. Nothing in the Old Testament said there's a problem with men having souls and physical bodies. Nothing in the New Testament says that's a problem. What you do see in the New Testament is Jesus himself had a spirit. He, he is God. And he also had a physical body. And those two things can be in perfect harmony. John 1 verses 1 through 14. So uh, you're asking specifically about asceticism. Asceticism is trying to fix a problem uh, that wouldn't be a problem if men hadn't started it. Right. Now that that's not to say that we should we shouldn't primarily be spiritually minded versus carnal because we should. Right. But Bodily it's not exercise profiteth little though. Paul said. Right. And it's, uh, it's we, not we that we should to godliness. Right. It's not that we should. Uh, just completely deny ourselves of anything physical. Obviously, we have to eat. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 4, the uh, the marriage bed is undefiled, so there's nothing sinful there with that particular physical uh, Jesus situation. Jesus fed the but, multitudes. Say it again? Jesus fed the multitudes. Right. So, Jesus so raised the dead to bring them back to a physical existence. Right. And if, if Gnosticism were true, then all those things would be sinful because of the physical nature of those things. Right. Do you? I guess last question uh, before we'll have to end it for this week. But First um, Timothy four verses one and following, where it talks about the departing that's going to take place. I know a lot of times people are either thinking Judaism there or Judaizers, or uh, perhaps the Catholic Church. Is there any chance at all that there could be a third option, and he might be reacting to some Gnosticism there? I think it is Gnosticism, but I think Gnosticism is one of the foundations of the Catholic Church. We tie that in with Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we see that those things which have to be um, developed before the Lord returns, some of them fit well with what we're reading in First Timothy chapter 4. Right. The uh, commanding to abstain from marriage and from meats that have been... Uh, ordained for us by God and things of that nature. Yeah. All right. 
Well, uh, I really appreciate Dan for joining us. We're, we're out of time for this week, but uh, this has certainly been a very interesting, brief introduction to the the uh, concept of the deity of Christ. Certainly, the listeners are welcome to uh, send in any questions that you might have to our email, and we'll be glad to get back with you on that. But this is a very, very crucial, important topic, the deity of Christ as the Son of God. Again, as we have stated this week and last week, without Christ being God the Son, and without Christ being also in the flesh, he wouldn't make the mediator that he is, the perfect mediator between God and man. So this, this is certainly a very, very critical topic. And Dan, I really appreciate you joining us to help us with this topic these last couple of weeks. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Well, tune in next week and we will continue our uh, discussions of doctrine. That's what we're talking about on the podcast this uh, this season. We've got uh, some some topics coming up on the plan of salvation and grace, faith, and works, worship, morality, and several other topics that we've got planned for this season on the Everyday Christian Podcast. So, so we hope that you will tune in next week as we continue uh, our discussions on the Everyday Christian Podcast. What's up, guys? It's Caleb and Michael over here from the Scattered Abroad Network, and we just wanted to say thanks so much for listening to this episode. Yeah, we're so thankful to the East Hill Church of Christ for overseeing this network, and we're grateful to God for this opportunity. And don't forget, you can check out our show notes below for all of our social media links, email address, website, and we have a monthly newsletter, so don't forget to sign up for that. Please remember to leave us a rating or a review on whatever platform it is that you use, and please continue to keep our network in your prayers. As always, thank you again so much for listening. Be ready tomorrow. We have brand new content coming out here on the SAN. Thanks so much, and God bless.